Hey, when we gather uh, as a church family on Sundays, it takes almost no effort for us to come in and to kind of put our minds to work, to receive a bit of knowledge and truth while still uh, potentially keeping the implications of scriptural truth away from our hearts. Say it a different way. It's very easy to come and to learn about God, but to not necessarily know him or respond to him in a way that would honor him. And therefore, our actual way of life, it doesn't change. We need good information. We know this, right? We need good information. But does information alone change us? I would say that it doesn't. Because I know that I should not load up on carbs. And what do I do continually? I go for the carbs. I go for the brownies. I go for the chips. I know that I shouldn't respond in a harsh way to someone with a word, but what do I do in the moment? I still do that. So knowledge alone isn't necessarily enough to change us. We need it, but it's not necessarily enough. So Jesus, he came to bring us the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. He said, you, you will know the truth. If you're my disciple, you'll know the truth, and that truth will set you free. So he came to bring us this knowledge, this word of truth, the knowledge that, of the good news that salvation is offered to us in him. And his promise is that when this word of truth is put into practice, that is the point at which we begin to live free. It sets us free. So we don't come to the scriptures. We don't gather with the church on Sunday only to collect knowledge because knowledge alone is not enough. We come to learn. We come to gather that knowledge and then work that knowledge into practice into our lives. As a church family, our vision is to saturate the inland Northwest and the nations with the good news of Jesus. That's what we want to do. We want to play our part in saturating the inland Northwest and the nations with the good news of Jesus. But we need to, we need to move that down into some more granular steps that we can take, which leads to a working definition right now of our mission. And our mission is to form wholehearted disciples of Jesus in life-giving relationships for everyday disciple-making. As we do that, we believe that we will play our part in seeing the inland Northwest and the nation saturated with the good news of Jesus. Let me break down the, the mission a little bit there for you. Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus, he breathes life into our souls. He corrects us. He gives us a, a pattern to live after, but he also frees us from the penalty of sin, and he gives us power over sin in our lives, and he promises to us that we will be freed entirely from the presence of sin. So we circle up around the good news of the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what we center ourselves on. Like we learned last week, he is the sum and the center of our faith. But life and community, as he invites us into this new community called the church, this is the context where we learn to follow Jesus more closely. And then everyday disciple-making is, for us, it's to learn to invite and disciple whoever is right in front of you into their own life with Jesus, into their own life in community, and into their own life on mission as disciple-makers in the everyday. 
So basics, this is the second week of this series, Basics, where we're gathering up around Jesus, the gospel, community, and mission. Basics is designed to help us understand these realities, to lead us to repentance and to joy in them, and to equip us, not entirely because we're not going to arrive by, through just a series of sermons, but to begin to equip us to live into it, to live it out. So last week we asked the question, what is the gospel, and is Jesus really the center point of all of scripture is the entire narrative of the Bible pointing at and centering on Jesus. And we discovered that it is out of his own mouth, all of the scriptures, all of the law and the prophets and the writings foretell his work in the world. So the good news of Jesus is that he has secured victory for you and I over our sin. And he has granted us life and reconciliation back to God. And I mentioned that the gospel can tend to be a bit of a junk drawer word. Whenever you use a word a lot, it can move into generalities. And so we have to be very careful to define it. So what kind of, what do I mean when I'm using this phrase gospel? The gospel is an announcement. It's a message. It's news about who Jesus is, about what Jesus has done on our behalf. He has accomplished salvation for us. More on that word salvation in a little bit. But the gospel, it's made up of historical events. Jesus Christ, in real time, he had a zip code. The Son of God became a man. He took on flesh. He entered into our world, and he lived beautifully, and he died brutally on our behalf. And as we come to the scriptures, as we come to God's word, we have a particular interpretation of what this gospel is, that through Christ, God is restoring the world to himself. That's the work of redemption. That's what he is doing. He is accomplishing salvation. And so those historical events, they have serious significance. They really did occur in time. And the gospel also, it just keeps giving. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It grants us the good news of Jesus, the reality of his life, death, burial, resurrection, his glorification, and his promised return. It also brings to us personal power. The more we live from the, the, the acknowledgement that this good news of Jesus Christ and his reality is our life source and our fuel, it brings us incredible joy. We recognize that from the cross, he said, it is finished, and so the work is done. Therefore, religion is dead. What I mean by that is earning our way to God through our own merit is done, according to Jesus Christ. It is impossible for humanity to earn our way into acceptance that's what the gospel declares for us. And so we simply receive reconciliation with God with empty hands, open to receive, empty hands of faith. There's even more. It comes with cosmic proportions as well. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and his reality, it doesn't end with you and I. God is unfolding his plan to restore all of creation, even remaking this world that we live within so that we will enjoy him in it forever and ever and ever and ever. In other words, the gospel is the true story of the world. It's the true story of how Jesus is the sum and center of God's saving centers and how even you and I can get in, as funky as we are, on this good news of his redemption, wrapped up into his purposes now, used by him to carry his kingdom forward. 
So over the next three weeks, beginning this, this week, we're going to cover these three tenses of our salvation. Past implications of the gospel for us, the present implications the gospel has on us, and future Im- implications that the gospel invites us to hope in. Our, our, our drift as people is toward viewing salvation as one-dimensional. And so when we, when we try to explain the gospel, oftentimes we'll start by saying, Jesus died for your sins, and that is absolutely true. We understand that we are saved by God's wrath against our rebellion by Jesus Christ. So this is absolutely a true aspect. But if it's all that we see, we've missed two additional transforming now and later dimensions of salvation, our present and future. The gospel has power for us in the present to help get us unstuck, but it also issues promises for us for the future as well. So this good news that that Jesus Christ brings home to us, it's at least, at a minimum, it's at least three-dimensional. Throughout the Bible, salvation is spoken of as an accomplished event in the past tense. It's spoken of as an ongoing experience that we are having with the risen Christ, which is present tense, but it's also spoken of as a coming reality, future tense. If you want more on that, look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2, and just notice the tenses that Paul uses there. This means that salvation is far more, salvation is far more than just what happens when we become a Christian. In reality, Salvation is the comprehensive work of God on our behalf, not just to make us family, but also to transform us, to become more and more like Christ, and to change creational reality. Here's what I mean by that. He's actually remaking the physical world that we live in new heavens, new earth. There's a promise coming that the lion will lay down with the lamb in harmony, and one will not devour the other. Which means that this coming reality, that the gospel, that the work that Jesus has already begun, as it is consummated, as it is finished by him at the very end of the age, it will include total shalom, total flourishing for all, not just of humanity, but for all of creation. And so here is a big statement. The gospel changes everything. Everything. We say it like this as it relates to us. The gospel is not just the way into the family of God, but it's also the way on in the family of God. So we don't move on from it. We continue to grow deeper and deeper into our awareness of the riches that the good news of Jesus Christ offers us. So I'm going to set up these three tenses of salvation here for you to see, and then we're just going to hang out on the first one this morning. So consider these benefits um, through the gospel available to you and I through three statements. The first statement is, we have been saved from the penalty of sin because of Jesus' life and death. As it's applied to us as we receive it by faith, we have been, past tense, saved from the penalty of sin. But the present tense application here is that we are being saved from the power of sin because of Jesus' resurrection and his glorification. He reigns. He sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling all things. And he is through our reliance on this good news. He is actually freeing us from the grip of sin's power. What I mean by that is we don't only have to say yes to it anymore. We can actually say 
that we can actually say yes to the Spirit and no to our flesh because of the work that Jesus is doing and has done on our behalf. And the future tense application here is we will be saved from the presence of sin because of Jesus' promised return when he makes all things new. Freed from the presence of sin. It's hard, so hard to get our minds around the reality that sin will no longer be present in creation and in our existence. It's really hard if you just start even to think about that. What are the implications of that? No sin whatsoever. No selfishness in the human heart whatsoever. Humans living in perfection, perfect harmony with one another and with God who created us. Now, why is it important that we kind of hold the past, present, and future implications of the gospel together? Let's, let's imagine for a moment that we, we don't have the past. We don't have assurance that uh, maybe I don't have assurance that my past sins have been forgiven. I'm 41 years old, and so I've got a long lineup of mess-ups behind me, big and small, daily. If I believe that I, have the, uh, that I have the power of God living through me to now say no to my flesh and yes to the Spirit, to honor Him now, and I believe that He, he will, he will uh, entirely eradicate sin from this planet, but I don't have any assurance that my past sins are forgiven, then what am I doing in the present? I'm working really hard to try to tip the cosmic scales of justice so that what I do today and forevermore will somehow tip those scales and outweigh what I've done in the past. And if I, if I believe that he's forgived my sin in the past, and I believe that he will eradicate sin and its presence from all reality in the future, but I don't believe that I have any power over it in the moment, where does that leave me? That leaves me in despair and stuck. But what he offers is that we have something to grab onto. We have something to motivate us out of our disordered ways in the here and now. And so he's calling us to, 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 to reach out to and to, and, and to take hold of the resources that the, the good news of Jesus' reality offers for us today. And let's say I believe that my past has been forgiven and I believe that I have some power to change today, but I'm not really sure that it's ever going to end in the future. That leaves me just working so hard today, eventually leading me to some sense of despair. There's way more implications that I could unpack, but just in a few minutes, I want to just show you how we need all three of these and, and the ability to kind of draw on the three of them at any given moment based on the scenarios and the worries of our hearts and the sin of our own lives. So today's focus is this, just in two parts. Number one, the gospel brings news that our problem is far worse than we realized. The good news of Jesus brings us news that our problem is actually way worse than we realized. And then the second aspect of that is the gospel brings news that because of Jesus Christ, the solution is far better than we imagined, far better than we had even hoped. Now, I want to give you a little bit of um, caution this morning. We're talking about sin this morning. We're talking about our own folly. We're talking about our own attempts to kind of earn our way or push other people down so that we can earn our way to God. And so there, there, there may be moments this morning where it just feels ugly to you. You, you don't like what you're seeing in your heart. You don't like the words that are coming out of my mouth. There may be recoil and shutdown moments for you this morning. And I want to just ask you, as that is happening, and as you begin to recognize that going on inside your own heart, would you 
remain as open as possible and resist the shutdown or resist the need to walk away and get out of here and just get a breather. I want you to think of this, if you're willing, like a stretch. I just want you to hold the tension as much as you're able over the next 30 minutes or so. And as you hold this tension, what you're doing is you're holding space for the Holy Spirit to work in you. And I believe that he's probably going to name some things for you. He's going to, he's, he's going to call things to your mind that he is, hear this, inviting you to deal with in his presence. So hold that tension. I believe that he will invite you to transformation and he will invite you to freedom. Will it be comprehensive just because of this morning? Probably not, but the work will begun, will be begun, and he will finish the work that he has begun in us. So this gospel, it brings news that our, that our problem is far worse than we realized. Imagine this following scenario. You're walking down the street. A car rolls up on you fast. The tires screech. The car comes to a halt. The door flings open. This person you recognize as your doctor jumps out of this car and says, You're healed. Can you believe it? The results came back. They're negative. It's a miracle. Is that good news? Maybe it depends on the disease. Are, what are, we, are we talking about the flu? Are we talking about COVID-19, our little friend? Are we talking about some, some, some issue, health that we've been, ha- with our health that we've been having for the last three years or so, and that the doctor thought they got a diagnosis on, and then he comes back and he says, whoa, 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 this is not an issue anymore. Are we talking about a terminal issue? And the doctor comes like how we receive that news, how good it is to us depends on what the disease is. Or I'll give you another scenario. Maybe a friend calls you, you answer the phone and they say, hey, I stopped by your house and you're not there. I know. Uh, I let myself into the house and I just, I, I was hungry. I hope you don't mind. I just grabbed something out of the fridge and I sat down at the kitchen table to, to eat it. And I noticed that there was like, there was a letter there or a bill or something. So I opened it. Uh, I hope you don't mind. Uh, I paid it. I paid for it. Okay. Um, let's. What were you doing in my house? Without, like, we've got to assess whether or not we want this person in our house without our permission. But is that good news? It depends on the size of the bill, does it not? Are we talking about a phone bill? Are we talking about a single mortgage payment? Okay. I'll be a little more open to you being in my house without my permission and opening my mail. Is this like a payoff of school loans that have been hanging over your head for 20 years? Is this a payoff of your entire mortgage note? The scope of that bill determines how that good news comes to us. And so the more realistic that we are about the size of our debt before a holy God, the more we understand Jesus' work as either good or great news. So what is the need for Jesus' life, his death? What is the disease? What's the size of our bill? Why did Jesus have to come and live beautifully and die brutally on our behalf? In order to even begin to answer that question and begin to answer it, um, that's as far as we will go this morning. But we need to begin understanding the biblical category of righteousness. 
So just where you are this morning, what is your definition of righteousness? You don't need to call it out like we did last week, but just kind of where you are in your seat. Take a moment. How do you define, if a friend asked you, what is righteousness? How do you define it? Take just a moment. Come up with a working definition. What is righteousness? To be righteous is to be morally right or justifiable. To be righteous is to be morally right or justifiable. The word righteous in the Hebrew, it comes from a word that means to be straight, over against crooked. So when we, uh, for carpenters, when you sight a board and you look down the length of a board, you say it's true, it's straight, it's righteous in effect. Here's a more full definition of righteousness. Righteousness is the quality of being right in the eyes of God, including our character, our nature, who we are internally, our conscience, which is our attitude, our conduct, which is our actions, and also our commands, which is our our words. So righteousness is the quality of being right in the eyes of God, in our nature, in our attitudes, in our actions, and in our words. Righteousness is based on God's standard because God is the ultimate lawgiver, because he is the creator. He is the one who sets the standard. Prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 33:22, 700 years before Christ, he said this about God. He said, "For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, it is he who will save us." And this kind of notion is found all throughout the scriptures. The apostle Paul in the New Testament, when he was writing to the Romans, this this church of Christians in Rome, uh, Romans is his most full systematic explanation of what the gospel, the content of the gospel that we have in one letter. He spends a full 12 chapters explaining what the gospel is from creation and fall, redemption and and consummation or restoration. He spends the first 12 chapters explaining all of that, and then only in the last four chapters does he get to what we should do in light of it. So he's writing to these Christians who are in Rome. And it's interesting because in Romans 1.15 he says, and I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. He's eager to preach the gospel to who? He's eager to proclaim the gospel to Christians, meaning the church, the people of God. We need to continually hear this good news of Jesus' reality, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his glorification, and his coming return. He would say in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he would say this as he was writing to them. He says, actually in 15, he says, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's to the Jew first and also to the Greek, so it's inclusive. For in the gospel, the righteousness of of God is revealed from faith for our faith. As we continue to lean on it, it continues to build our faith. And he says, he quotes uh, Abraham here, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, or God's interaction with Abraham. In Genesis, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 18 of Romans 1 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their righteousness, no, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
So he's saying that this gospel, this word of our salvation, it's the power of God. He gives it, and it's aimed at unrighteous humanity in order to make us righteous. So he gives of his power, we receive it. And Paul's aim in the first three chapters of Romans is to lay out a simple proposition, which kind of culminates in Romans 3.23. It's this, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The definition of sin is we have missed the mark of God's righteousness and therefore are unrighteous as humanity. Right before that, in Romans 3, 9 through 12, and he even goes, he even goes on uh, further through verse 18, um, he, just, he quotes the Psalms, and he just lays out how no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The implications on this are massive for humanity. This means that every single category of person, Jew, Greek, religious, irreligious, lovers of God, haters of God, morally good and upright people, totally immoral, unethical people alike, all come up short. Essentially, there's two teams, God and everyone else. This means that God made the world out of his joy, out of his love. He created humanity. He blessed it. He created us, humans, to honor him, depend on him, thank him. He created humanity to flourish. And we would flourish as we would live under his reign and follow his ways. And as designer, he knew how we would flourish. He knows the plans. The designer knows the creation. The, the, the product designer knows the product. God is the designer of humanity, and he knows what we were created for. And so he gives us standards. He gives us regulations. He gives us best practices. And his rules are righteous. He is the standard. So here's how you live. Here's how we relate. Here is the way to abundant life. And then Paul will say, quoting uh, the Psalms and quoting other portions of Scripture, he will say in Romans 3.23, all humans have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so what this means is that we have not been who we ought to be. We are not who we are made to be. We are not who we are designed to be. In thought, in intention, in word, in deed, we have fallen short, way short of what God desires and designed, what he intended us to be. And so as a result, all people everywhere stand condemned before a holy God. This means that we're not righteous. We don't conform to his standard. We don't conform to his will. We don't conform to his ways. We are lawbreakers. We are criminals de deserving of punishment and consequence. It's heavy. This is indictment. This is that point when you're in court because you've done something wrong and the judge is issuing the charges against you and the weight just sinks in of what is in front of you. When somebody is born in the USA, when somebody lives in the USA, but when somebody uses their time and their energy to undermine the laws of our land, what do we do? We try them for treason, we sentence them, and we condemn them. This is how America works with those who are subverting her from the inside. 
Now, who is the unrighteous one in that judgment and in that relationship? It's the one who is seeking to undermine. Yet creation charges righteous God. So we, we would hold that to be, to be acceptable in our country. We want justice. We want there to be laws of the land. We want there to be standard. Yet creation, humanity, charges this righteous God with unrighteousness for his just wrath against our unrighteousness. And so we're inconsistent, even, even more proof of our unrighteousness. And the scriptures are clear, the Bible's clear that, 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 that sin, especially when it is full grown, but sin, it brings death. Paul will continue this to develop this argument in Romans 6.23, and he'll say for the wages or the consequence, you get what you pay for, the wages of sin is death. In Romans 5.12, just before that statement, he would say, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Righteousness, it's not even, a, uh, it, it's not even an exclusively biblical or, or, or religious category either. The drive to be found righteous, it's hidden underneath everything that we do, is it not? so many modern equivalents of righteousness. I'll just give you a, an easy one for starters. Maybe you're a laid back person and you just roll with punches, but that more type A person in your life just annoys you to no end. And so you look down your smug nose at them having all their life together, right? Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you are more of a type A person. You've got the details all worked out. You know A, B, C, D. But that person who's just more laid back, who just doesn't do things on the timeline that you want them to do, just annoys you. And so you look down your nose at them. Or maybe you're well-researched. Maybe you're woke to the cause. Whatever the cause is, either side of the aisle. What happens when you encounter a person who also is well-researched but has differing views on the cause? and how things should turn out. What's your internal posture? It's a moment of taking inventory. What's your inter internal posture towards someone created in the image of God? Is it to scoff at them for being so naive? Maybe you're a rule follower. You get so mad when people drive in the left lane on the freeway. Or maybe you get upset when people don't wear masks. Or maybe you get upset when people do wear masks. Speaking to our cultural moment, what's the internal posture of your heart? Maybe you're the independent type. I don't look to anybody or anything. I don't need anyone. But then this itself is a, a form of your own righteousness. You're okay because you don't need anyone or anything. But then what happens when you have to make the call and ask for the help? You're not okay anymore. Racism? absolutely a form of righteousness based on skin color. What I've begun to discover too is that now it's like in our cultural moment being anti-racist has now begun to qualify who's righteous and who's not. Are you anti-racist enough in culture? And now the collective mob is holding us to the standard. All of these things are a, a form of righteousness. They're, they're not actually simply forms of righteousness. They're actually forms of self-righteousness. This drive within us to meet the standard, to be accepted based on our merit. 
So every point that we compare and we live judgmentally toward others reveals our lack of understanding on how we have lived toward a holy God and how he has responded to us in our unrighteousness. Romans 3, 9, and 9 through 12, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul Tripp, uh, he says it like this. He says, self-righteous people are always more upset about the sin of others than their own. Consider that for a moment. Self-righteous people are always more upset about the sin of others than their own. It takes grace to admit that you need grace. Since sin is deeper than bad behavior, trying to do better isn't a solution. Only grace that changes the heart can rescue us. There's a difference between a person in whom disappointment leads to self-reformation and someone in whom grief leads to heartfelt confession. The first person believes in personal strength and the possibility of self-rescue, while the second has given up on his own righteousness and cries out for the help of another. I feel like this echoes Paul's words at the end of Romans chapter 7, where he says, I don't do what I want to do. I want to do what I don't want to do. Who will save me? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're stuck in this crazy cycle, trying to do better. And as we white-knuckle it, as we try to, try to conjure up the energy and the strength from within, always failure and exhaustion comes. And so the gospel brings us news that our, that our problem is far worse than we realized. But the gospel brings news that because of Jesus Christ, the solution is far better than we hoped. So I'm going to use a phrase, grace. We need to define grace continually in our own minds and our own hearts. It's undeserved favor. It's unearned merit. You cannot earn the grace of God. You cannot earn the grace of another person, not according to the scriptures. And so the gospel of God's grace, the good news of Jesus Christ is the news that God has grace on undeserving. The gospel of God's grace, it's a phrase that is so shallow on one end that we can apprehend some of its meaning in a moment. But it's so deep and wide on the other end that we can devote ourselves to understanding and enjoying it forever and ever. God... God's grace, it cannot be mastered. It cannot be deserved. It can only, grace from God can only be received with empty hands and embraced. And it doesn't run out on you either. So it can be received by simple faith and enjoyed every day for the rest of our lives. The gospel of grace is a breathtaking shot of God's holy, unreserved, restorative love aimed at you and I to cover every fault and every sin and every thread of unbelief and to make us into what we are powerless to make of ourselves. Grace is the staggering truth that, the, that, the, that God has accepted you and I fully, Fully, not partially, but fully according to what Jesus has done, not anything we have ever earned or can repay. So I'll say it like this. Grace isn't a payout granted to winners. But it's one-way love 
not based on anything that we can contribute. Grace is the righteousness of God granted to the undeserving, granted to the underperforming, granted to the inexcusable, granted to the unrighteous at Jesus Christ's expense. The grace of God, the gospel of grace is 100% gift declaring from the judge's bench with a smack of the gavel that the condemnation due to you and I has fallen on another. Your condemnation has fallen on another. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Justice has been served on our sin on the back of Jesus Christ. And you and I, because of it, are pardoned. Jesus Christ called out from his cross. What? It is finished. Either it is or it's not. Is it finished or is it not? Because if he said it is and you say it's not, you're saying he's a liar. And God does not lie. There is no deceit in him whatsoever. Jesus' apostle Peter, he said it like this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By Jesus' wounds, you've been healed. Paul would write to the church in Colossae, and you who were dead in your trespasses and flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses, every ounce of unbelief in you, in yesterday, today and forevermore has been fully and finally covered by Jesus Christ. He has canceled the record of debt that stood against you with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He nailed his son to the cross and by so doing disarmed the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places and on earth and put them to open shame by triumphing over all of them in Christ. Now there's a backside to Romans 3.23 that we often miss in the same way that we often miss the backside to John 3.16. The backside to John or to, to Romans 3.23 is that, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Romans 24 through 26 says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So Christ came to appease. Propitiation means an appeasement. Jesus came to appease the wrath of God. And this is to be received by you and I. Scripture says to be received by faith. This was to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. This is God's word declaring truth and good news to your soul, the person in your seat. And so I'll end with this quote from J.I. Packer. Listen to this. Let it just sit on you. I'm going to read it slow. There is unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that energizes in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. Resist the temptation to think this, you guys, look at me. Resist the temptation to think that this is about someone else. 
this is aimed directly at your heart. He is constantly taking knowledge of you in love and watching over you, not to catch you, but for your good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic. Based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way that I'm so often disillusioned with myself and quench his determination to bless me. There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that he sees all of the twisted things about me that my fellow men do not see and that he sees more twisted corruption in me than I can see in myself. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love and the thought that for some unfathomable reason he wants me as his friend, he desires to be my friend, and has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. Full stop. Father, would you help this news of your redemption dawn on us, sit on us, stay with us. Holy Spirit, as an exercise there are things that we feel deep shame over we've done recently or in the past we have we're in a kind of bondage of, of, of guilt of shame of regret over and so what we tend to do with those things is we, we wall those off from you and, and, and we, we just let them exist somewhere back in the, in the past in this ambiguous kind of fuzzy place. And we just try to forget about them because of the pain that they cause us when we remember. Holy Spirit, would you help us to remember what those things are? Would you help us with the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart, to take those and even to physically just hold out our hands before you and to offer them to you? to declare that it is finished over those things. There is no condemnation for me anymore before you, Jesus Christ. So I am set free. She is set free. He is set free. And would you help us to remember those in a way so that we don't repeat the past, but we draw on power in the present to live differently and to honor you with all of our days coming. Father, you are holy. Jesus, you are holy. Holy Spirit, you live in us and you draw us to repentance and rejoicing. And those are always held together when the gospel is on our minds and has come to bear on our hearts. Repentance and rejoicing, repentance and rejoicing. Look at what you have done. You have saved us from the penalty for our sins. In Jesus' name.